And so now we're going to go to Scripture, and this week it's going to be in Luke 21, verse 1 through 4. And this is going to be the third part of a three-part series on why we do certain things here at Regeneration. And so the first one was why we do communion, and the second one was why we do worship, and today is going to be why we give. And so Luke 21, 1 through 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. All right, thank you, Stefan. Thank you, boy band, for leading us in worship. I've been wanting to say that all morning when I saw those guys up there. I thought, this is cool. <laughs> all right, here's the quick nerdy pastor moment, all right? So I got this tiny little Bible, and since I've been teaching here, I haven't been able to figure out how to get a Bible up here with me. I know this is like, sounds so dumb, but for whatever reason, those larger Bibles don't fit with my notes, or they slide off this thing, and so I was like, I need a tiny Bible. So I got one. So today's maybe going to be the best sermon you've ever heard, because I'm so excited about having my Bible up here with me. <laughs> All right, let's begin with just a really quick review. Uh, As Stefan said, we've been in this short little series here for the month of July while Albert is out, and we've been talking about the things that we do, or what might be referred to as our liturgy. So uh, we said that we want to revisit this and think about our liturgy for a couple different reasons. First, we hope that this series is able to redeem the idea of liturgy for us. We all bring a variety of experiences with liturgy into a community like this, and some of those experiences have been good. For others, maybe they haven't been good. They've been pretty negative. But in either case, we want our community to have a deeper appreciation for what we do and why we do it. Second, there are those of us, even in the summer, who are coming who are new And so it's good for us to explain what we do and why we do it so that you feel a little bit more comfortable with who we are and hopefully are able to move to a place we are able to call regeneration your home. And then finally, for those of us who have been around for a while, the things that we do can become routine or white noise, comfortable, potentially even boring or lifeless. And so we hope to bring some fresh eyes and breathe some new life into these things that we do on a regular basis each week when we get together. So, so far we've seen that this word liturgy literally means, it's kind of etymological root meaning, it means the work of the people. And I think this is a really important truth for us. We talked about this a little bit more in depth last week, but I'll say it again. Church is never simply the work of pastors or professionals. All right, church is our work. It's what we do week in and week out as we gather together and participate in the life of this community together. So what are some of the things that we do on a regular basis when we gather? We've identified six core practices, and here's just a couple of them, and then I'll talk about the ones we've hit in this series a little bit. So every time when we gather, we are experiencing community, relationship, getting to know one another better. We read scripture together several times throughout our gathering. Scripture is the foundation for all that we do. And then we pray together. All right, we have prayer during our services. And then as Stefan said, we have these prayer gatherings on Sunday afternoons and also on Monday mornings. 
So three of our six core practices, community, scripture, and prayer. And we've had specific teachings on each of those earlier on in the year. And if you've been around, you'll remember some of those perhaps. And again, you can go back and listen to or watch those if you have the time to do that later on. So in this short series, we've hit what I would call our three other core practices. Communion. We've talked about why we take communion every week when we gather, how it helps us remember what Jesus has done for us. We sing And last week we spent some time on this one, right, talking about how it's kind of weird, right? There aren't very many places in our culture where we get together and sing songs with other people, and yet it's part of what we do every Sunday. And so why is that? And we saw that it connects to this bigger idea of worship. And today we're going to talk about why we give. And again, this is one of those things that connects to a bigger idea. And so more importantly, we're going to spend some time thinking about what it means to be generous, both individually and as a community. So... That's where we've been and where we're headed, and let's just pray here quickly, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this community of people who are trying to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly together as we follow you. May we never slip into a place where the things that we do on a regular basis are routine, lifeless ritual, or even superstition, things that we do to hopefully earn your approval. May they always be a response to who you are and what you've done in our lives, what you are doing in the world. And may we as a community be a reflection of your love and the sacrifice of Jesus to those around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to read out of my tiny little Bible. So again, our text today, Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Back in 2001, the global advertising firm Young and Rubicam declared brands are the new religion. Brands are the new religion. This idea is picked up by a guy named Matt Rossano, a psychology professor at Southeastern Louisiana University, in an article that he wrote for the Huffington Post called Sacred Brands, Consumerism as Modern Religion. And in the article, he argues consumer behavior and brand loyalty may be functioning psychologically in a manner similar to religion. And you don't have to be a psychology professor to notice this, right? To know that this is true. To see this at play in our world, it's all over the place. We've created temples dedicated to brands. We call them malls. We have high holy days, like Black Friday, right? Amazon tried to get in on this phenomenon a couple weeks ago with their Prime Day. These days that are set apart to acquiring more stuff and getting good deals. We have temples, we have high holy days, we have rituals around these holy days. We rise early in the morning and we stand in long lines so that we have the first shot at the best deals. And then we have priests and leaders, everyone from Kim Kardashian to my beloved Buster Posey, who are constantly telling us, buy this, get this, acquire this. This will make you happy. We find and we create meaning through what we can purchase. Consumerism has become, in many ways, our dominant cultural story. Now, several hundred years ago, Alexis de Tocqueville, 
a French guy who toured the United States for a little while, said this about our country. He said, there's a strange melancholy haunting inhabitants of democracies in the midst of abundance. Now, why is this? Why is this? One of the shortfalls, among many, I would argue, but one of the shortfalls of consumerism is that it's not a very compelling story. It doesn't bring meaning and answer life's deepest questions for us. Maybe even more importantly, we aren't moved by acts of consumption, right? We aren't brought to tears by heroic halls brought home from the mall. We don't cry at the end of movies about guys who want Volvos. We are moved by acts of love, by sacrifice, by romance. Pastor Oren McManus says, to want to take is not romantic. To long to give, now that's romance. Life, he says, is most enjoyed when we give ourselves away. I think we know this to be true. This is why we love hearing people's engagement stories. My wife, Amy, and I, we met in Salinas, our hometown where we grew up, but we had both left for college and then returned after graduation. And by the time our paths crossed, we were actually both on our way back out of town, so to speak. Amy was getting ready to head towards Boston for graduate school, and I was about to move to Colorado to help plant a church. And so we met, and then we sort of departed, and yet at the same time, despite that distance, we grew closer and closer. And it didn't take me very long to realize that this girl, this is the one. So of course that meant trying to figure out an awesome way to ask for her hand in marriage. Now, I'd only been to Boston once in my entire life when she moved there, and so I was faced with a fairly significant challenge. How do you plan and execute an engagement moment in foreign territory? I had no one on the ground to help me, no personal knowledge of the city to speak of, and so I spent hours and hours Googling, like only a man in love can Google, trying to figure out how am I going to do this? Where can we go? And I knew it was going to be in the fall, and so there was, you know, questions of weather and what if it rains or snows on us and all this kind of stuff. But after much time and research and deliberation, I developed a plan, and I made the reservations. I designed and bought a ring, and then I booked my flight to Boston. Now, I landed in Boston on a Saturday, the Saturday before Thanksgiving in 2007. Amy, though, was still very much in the middle of her first semester of her graduate program. She's a doctor of physical therapy, and the first semester is really difficult, and she had a test on Tuesday. So what that meant is that I get there on Saturday, and I have to pretend for three days, like nothing hugely significant is about to happen. Everything's cool, totally normal, which was hard enough. But then I also have this ring on me, and I'm sleeping on some dude's living room floor that I don't know, and I'm getting on buses and trains and going all over the city, and I have this ring with me, probably the most expensive thing that I'd ever bought to that point in my life, and I'm like freaked out I'm going to lose this ring in Boston. And so I was like Frodo, keeping it, <laughs> keeping it secret and safe as I traveled around. Seriously, I was like checking my pockets like every 30 seconds to make sure that that thing was still there. Thank God, though, I did not lose that ring. So finally, Tuesday rolls around, and I told Amy, meet me at Marsh Chapel. Marsh Chapel is this really beautiful church building in the middle of Boston University's campus. 
And we snuck up into the balcony, kind of like our balcony up here, and I had flowers set up, and I read her the story of how we met and fell in love, and I asked her to be my wife, and she said yes, and it was awesome. Yeah, every time I tell that story, people go, yeah. <laughs> and that's my whole point, though, right? We love these kinds of stories. These are the kinds of stories that move us, and these are the kinds of things that we do when we're in love. We spend hours researching white gold and all the different cuts of diamonds and where they come from, and we plan and scheme out these moments, and then we live in fear for 72 hours of losing a ring, not because of what we get out of it, but because we care so much for this other person. We love hearing and telling these kinds of stories. Because I think we know at a very deep level, romance is beautiful and moving because, as McManus said, it's connected to this deep truth that life is best when we give ourselves away. Life is best when we give ourselves away. And that points us, I think, in the direction of a better story than what is offered to us by the story of consumerism. So generosity is inherently romantic, but I would argue it goes even deeper than that because generosity is fundamentally connected to God's character. And this brings us to this scene that we've read here a couple times this morning, Luke 21. The scene opens with Jesus sitting at the temple, and he's watching people put money into the treasury, which is kind of weird, right? Can we just say that up front? What is he doing? <laughs> But as he's watching this, he sees the scene unfold, and he sees the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Now, we don't really know the mechanics of this. We don't know how Jesus knows what exactly is going on here, but he does. And I think it's safe to say that these folks are able to put in a significant amount of money, right, into the treasury box, which in many ways is our working definition of generosity, the ability to write a large check. But then he sees this poor widow put in her two small copper coins. My daughter would call it a really super tiny amount of money. Two copper coins called leptas were worth very little. They were a fragment of a day's wage. A day's wage was a silver coin called a drachma. And a copper coin was about one 128th of a drachma. So she's just throwing in some pocket change. But then, here's Jesus' assessment, his radical assessment of what he sees unfold. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Now, most folks listening to this story would have said, really, Jesus? Really? The widow is the hero of this story? The expectation would have been for a rabbi to praise those that were able to further the mission of the church, the mission of the temple, by giving great amounts. And there's good reason for this. Jesus' people at this time are governed and even oppressed in many ways by a very greedy empire, the Roman Empire, who levied incredible taxes on Jesus' people. And so those who were able to both pay the tax and contribute to the temple were revered. The ability to be able to do that was clearly a sign that these folks were blessed by God. 
But Jesus makes the widow the hero, completely flips their expectations around. Her tiny penny, he says, has greater value than these large sums that these other folks were able to give. Classic Jesus. Now, why does he do this? Well, right before this, in Luke chapter 20, Jesus has been in a series of debates with various religious leaders. The way that Luke unfolds, in Luke chapter 9, we're told Jesus sets his eyes to Jerusalem and he begins to sort of make this, this is morbid, but this death march towards Jerusalem. But it takes him 10 chapters to get there. And finally, in Luke 19, he shows up in Jerusalem. He weeps over the city and then he begins to have all of these confrontations with some of the religious authorities and a big chunk of that takes place in Luke chapter 20. And so they've been debating all kinds of different things. They've had debates about resurrection, debates about Jesus's divinity, where does he really come from, debates about paying taxes, and debates about Jesus's authority. And at the end of all of that, at the end of all of those conversations, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts, who devour widows, hint, hint, houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Many scholars believe that the scribes that Jesus calls out here are the very same wealthy folks who are making donations into the treasury in Luke chapter 21. There are some strong and pretty obvious connections between these two scenes, right? And I think when you hold these together, Jesus is making at least two really important points. First, Jesus rejects a self-justifying form of spirituality. In that culture, the scribes, these other religious leaders, they had it all going for them, right? They believed all the right things. They read all the right books. They wore all the right clothes. They got into all the cool events and parties. They were living the first century red carpet lifestyle. Again, every appearance of being blessed by God. But Jesus says, nope. Why? Well, for one, their wealth and privilege came at the expense of the poor and the vulnerable in that community. Jesus says, you are devouring widows. And then, and this is really key, he points out two ways they try to cover this up. They make long prayers and they make big donations to the temple. Look how spiritual I am. Pray for many hours. Look at how generous I am. This is why Jesus utters this pretty intense statement at the end of chapter 20, this commentary about uh, greater condemnation. They get it wrong, first of all, by living a lifestyle that exploits the poor and the vulnerable, and then they get it wrong again by justifying themselves through these empty spiritual practices, these long prayers and showy donations. So Jesus rejects and even condemns this kind of spirituality. Second, though, Jesus affirms a radical, trusting generosity. The widow Jesus praises is the embodiment of one of his most famous teachings. Flip over to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, 
nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So much of our consumerism, our consumption, comes from a place of deep anxiety, deep fear, deep uncertainty. We worry about the future. What kind of job will I get? What if I don't get that job? What if I don't get into that school? How will I support my family? What if I get laid off? All of these anxieties about how we'll make ends meet. But Jesus, his invitation is to a non-anxious life of trust. And trust brings us right to the heart of generosity, what it means to be generous. The wealthy who gave at the temple remain wealthy. Right? They walk away still able to provide for themselves, still able to buy their next meal, pay the rents. Life, for the most part, continued on as normal. Their posture is self-reliant. But for this widow, she puts it all on the line. Where would her next meal come from? How is she going to pay her bills? What if she has an emergency? Her generosity was sacrificial and it put her at the mercy of other people. Her posture moved from reliance on herself to one of trust. We can trust God's goodness and his provision because he has been extremely generous towards us. 1 Corinthians 8 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. The story of the widow's generosity comes near the very end of Jesus' life. Very shortly after this, he will be betrayed and tried and crucified on a cross. And so in some ways, this story, sort of an odd story to have here right at the end of Jesus' life, and yet it is in many ways a foreshadowing of what is about to happen. Jesus is reversing the heroes in this story right before the great reversal. Jesus taking our place, becoming poor that we might become rich. And of course, not rich in the material sense, but rich in the sense of this abundant, full life, both now and on into eternity. You see, generosity is not just a good idea. It's not something we do because we want to be good people. Generosity is at the very heart of God's nature. At the very heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the truth that God is extremely generous towards us. So when we are generous, when we give sacrificially, it's one of the deepest 
and most profound ways we get to reflect God's generosity to us towards the rest of the world. And this is really, really important because if our generosity is fueled by, is about making ourselves feel better for our participation in a consumer religion, if it's about justifying ourselves either in our own eyes or in the eyes of others or in the eyes of God, we are completely missing the point. True generosity, Jesus is saying, flows from the experience of God's grace in our lives. And it is then a response of gratitude and of love. 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Generosity is not something we do to earn God's love, to earn God's approval. It is a response to this God who loved us first. Now, in a moment, I'll try to make the case that generosity is about far more than money, but I think it's important that we pause for a moment and talk about money a little bit. Because the truth is money has this incredible power to reveal where we put our trust, right? To show us where our true affections lie. And it's hard to talk about money. And I got to be honest here and, and just sort of confess that there are very few things in my life that expose sin as quickly as money. My wife and I have been reading a couple of books here recently, and we talk about our finances all the time. It's a pretty regular topic of conversation in our home, but we've been reading a book together called The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. Actually a phenomenal book. I would recommend it for parents, particularly those with smaller kids. But we've gotten in so many fights in the last two weeks just because of this dumb book. <laughs> I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's just true. When we talk about money, it just exposes for me how much trust I put in our bank account, how confident I feel when there's more in there, and how insecure I feel when there isn't. What you find out when you talk about money is that money is connected to so many things. What you're really talking about is childhood, and family, messages that you've received from your parents, and your hopes, and your dreams, and your fears, and your deep anxieties. And of course, again, all of those things are connected. I think this is why Martin Luther, the great Reformation theologian, says there are three conversions. First, there's conversion of the mind, then there is conversion of the heart. Finally, and this is the most difficult, he says, there is conversion of the wallet. And again, I am very much still wrestling through that third conversion. Now, two closing questions. What does the way you handle your money say about who you trust, about where your true affections lie? Every dollar you spend is an endorsement of something. Every dollar you spend is an endorsement of something. So do your finances reflect the amazing love and grace of God, or are they a reflection of some deep fear, some deep anxiety you're holding on to? Do they reveal self-justification or the justifying, saving work of Jesus? And remember, the ultimate issue here is not money, it's trust. Do you trust God enough to trust him with your finances? Now, my experience is that in a room like this, some of you are thinking, Good point, Steve. That's great. 
but I am in such a mess financially that I don't even know where to begin. And there are a lot of great tools out there to help us move towards this kind of radical trust with our finances. And we're actually going to offer one of these coming up here in the fall. Stefan talked about how we're going to have some different classes. One of them is going to be the Financial Peace University class. And Amy and I are going to help facilitate that. We've had a great experience with it. We know several close friends who have gone through the program and have gotten out of massive amounts of debt. And again, more importantly, ordered their financial lives in such a way that they begin to reflect the goodness and the grace of God. And so if you have any questions about that, if you'd like to know more about that class, come talk to me afterwards. We'll begin some signups for that here in the near future, but wanted to let you know about that a little bit even just this morning as we have this conversation. So first question was, what do your finances reveal about what you trust? And then question two is, what step will you take towards this radical trusting generosity? I have a couple suggestions. But again, this is something that you will need to sort out with God, something you'll need to sort out if you're married with your spouse. But a couple of suggestions. First, make giving what scripture talks about as tithing part of your regular financial rhythm. What I found is that this is actually a great way to begin ordering your finances because you begin to notice what comes in and what comes out when you start doing this. Generosity, you see, is a practice. It's like a muscle that we need to continue to work out. And so regular engagement and some kind of a giving plan is a really wise thing to do. And this is why we include this in our core practices, our liturgy. Now, we're fairly discreet about this here. We don't do the, like, pass the plate thing or anything like that. And I would also say this. For those of you who are new to our community or visiting this morning, we really don't want you to feel any kind of pressure or obligation to give. What I'm about to say is really more for those of us who call Regeneration our home church. If this is your home church, we encourage the idea of the tithe. Tithing comes from the Old Testament idea that you give back to God the first 10% of what you make. Now, I like to explain tithing like this. Thanks to Jesus, we now live under grace. We're no longer tied to the Old Testament law, and so we aren't bound to the tithe. Okay, we aren't held to a strict 10% rule. Now, when I say that, some people are like, yeah. But here's the thing. Under grace, we're now free to give all that we can, all that we want. You can go way beyond 10%. Again, the law restricted us, but grace frees us to be radical in how we practice generosity. So if this is your church home, again, my first suggestion here is just to create a giving plan. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. And if you have questions about that, again, I'd love to help answer them. Albert would love to answer them. Our elders, Mike, Bruce, Eric's in the back there. We'd all love to answer any questions you have about the mechanics of that. But start somewhere would be my first suggestion. Start somewhere. And then my other suggestion is simply to be creative. Again, there are so many ways to be generous that are outside of the conversation of money. If we only make generosity about money, we run the risk of becoming like the scribes, where we measure our spirituality by how much or how little we're giving. Now, the word generosity is very closely related to the words generate and generative, which at their root mean to give life. Ultimately, to be a generous person is to be a life-giving person, and there are a lot of ways to do that. Take someone to lunch. Visit someone who's sick. 
Watch someone's kids. Amen? Invite someone to go for a walk, offer a ride, share your stuff, be creative. There's all kinds of different ways to practice generosity. There are really no limits on it. Now, as we come in here for a close, I want to say this. My experience so far, I've been here almost seven full months now. My experience here at Regeneration is that this is an extremely generous community. And so in a lot of ways, kind of preaching to the choir this morning. And yet, the power of the consumeristic story of our culture is strong. It is really strong. And so one of the reasons we want to include this in the idea of liturgy, the week-in, week-out rhythm of our community, is because we need to be reminded again and again that there is a different story. And so my encouragement to you guys is just to keep it up. Continue excelling and telling a different story, a life-giving story that reflects the great generosity that God has shown towards us. Let's pray. Father, we, we just don't like talking about money. It's not a fun conversation necessarily. And yet it is so ingrained in all that we participate in in so many ways. And again, we're swimming in a stream that continually reinforces the message that we can buy our way to happiness, that we can find meaning and purpose in the things that we're able to do with our financial resources. And yet your invitation is to trust you with it and to let it go, to allow it to be used for your purposes. And so God, I am so pleased to be a part of a community like this that knows and understands how to practice generosity. And so may this church continue to push in that direction towards ever greater trust, ever greater reliance on you to meet our needs and to take care of us and out of that abundance to be able to share with our neighbors, to share with those who are in need in our community and to tell the story of Jesus through how we steward the things that you have given to us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.